I want to welcome those of you who are joining us here, but those of you who join us right now live online or on CFNT, on Facebook Live, various other venues. Welcome to the Church at Shepherd, to our West Campus. Thank you guys for being here today, and uh, really appreciate those of you who watch us on television, also on Channel 3. So thank you guys for being here. Uh, we're continuing a series of messages that I started last week called The Pardon, and we're going to talk about forgiveness for the next few weeks. I'll tell you, as we've kind of marched through 2020 and over this past 12 months, there's one thing that I've realized, and that is that a number of my personal sports heroes have passed away this year. And I don't know if I just took more notice of it or like more of it happened this year, uh, but among those sports heroes that passed away, maybe no one's death was more tragic than Kobe Bryant. Last January, he and his daughter and some other friends were killed in a horrible helicopter crash in the Los Angeles area. Uh, Kobe Bryant was a force in the NBA. He was among the greatest players to ever play the game. And when he was most dominant was really when he was paired up with Shaquille O'Neal. When Shaquille, that seven-foot-one-inch big man inside, and Kobe on the outside, the Lakers were absolutely dominant. They had a three-peat world championship, winning in 2000, 2001, and 2002. But while Kobe and Shaq were a symphony on the court, they were a train wreck off of the court. I mean, they were absolutely hostile toward one another. There were locker room fights. There were cussing, shouting matches. There were threats against one another. Both of them, at one time or another, went to reporters and told stories about the other that were not true, that got published. I mean, they were defaming one another's character. It was absolutely locker room mayhem. And so finally, Shaquille goes off and basically goes off ultimately into retirement. Kobe continues to play, wins a couple more championships with another cast of characters. But something happened about seven or eight years ago. And that was that they, they ran into one another and they began to talk. And they began to realize that some of the things that they had done and some of the things that had been done to them you know, they weren't, they weren't right, and so they began to talk. In 2015, Kobe actually appeared on Shaquille O'Neal's podcast. And uh, then in 2018, a couple of years ago, uh, at the All-Star break, there was a very revealing interview in which both Kobe and Shaq admitted they had done things that were harmful to one another. They asked for forgiveness. They, they reconciled their relationship. It was really a beautiful moment that you don't see many times on sports television. And then came last January. In the public memorial service for Kobe Bryant and his daughter, Shaquille O'Neal sat on the stage and all 325 pounds of his seven-foot, one-inch frame just shook. He was wrecked with grief. And as I watched this man grieving over the loss of his former teammate and the man who was closer than that, Shaquille O'Neal in their reconciliation called Kobe, my brother from another mother. And I thought this, it's bad the way it is, but wouldn't it have been much worse 
if Shaquille O'Neal had to sit there knowing that he had never offered forgiveness to Kobe Bryant and that he had never asked for forgiveness. Some grudges, let me rephrase that. No grudge is worth carrying to the grave. There comes a time when we need to let go of old offenses. There comes a time when we need to cancel the debt. There comes a time when we need to let bygones be bygones. We need to learn to forgive. And that is what Jesus is going to begin teaching us in the passage of Scripture we're going to talk about this morning. I began to think about some things this week. And some of you, I don't know if it's because this topic is just so red hot in many of our lives. But I realize that this particular sermon series has gotten a little bit more feedback than, than maybe some others have. And you've asked some questions, good questions. And I know you've talked a lot about, you know, how do you do this? And, and what does this mean for this former relationship that I have? And forgiveness just seems to be problematic for a lot of us. Maybe for most of us, learning to forgive is hard. And so I've thought about why is that? Now, this isn't part of the outline. This is kind of a freebie, but I thought of at least three reasons. The first reason that I think forgiveness is hard for many of us is that we don't have good models of it sometimes. Even the people who are forgiven find it hard to forgive. It's amazing to me that we as the church, we as the redeemed people of God, we as the people who claim that Christ has forgiven us, sometimes find it hard to forgive, even within the church. And if we can't do it in here, then how are we going to model that when we go out on mission into our community and into our workplace and into our neighborhood and into our sports teams? We as followers of Jesus should be models of forgiveness, but sometimes the forgiven are the most unforgiving. Sometimes Christians, let's just be honest, can be self-righteous and judgmental, and we can withhold forgiveness longer than anybody else. The second reason I think forgiveness is so hard is that we really... We really think people ought to suffer at least a little bit for what they've done to us. If not suffer, then at least squirm. We want them to feel bad for what, after all, they hurt us. We want them to hurt just a little bit. We want them to at least suffer the humiliation of coming back and apologizing. For some of us, that blocks us from forgiving others. Because... Our fleshly desire, and make no mistake about it, there's nothing spiritual about that. Our fleshly desire for others to hurt because we've hurt. But the third reason is that sometimes we are very comfortable in blaming others for our attitudes and our actions and the words that we speak. Sometimes we use our wounds as crutches and excuses for being malicious or being unkind or being unloving. And what we say is, oh, I've been hurt. I have a right to this attitude. As a follower of Jesus, no, you don't. Because Jesus is our model. And he's going to show us in this passage what it means to forgive. And from really a unique place. 
In Luke chapter 23, what we have is Jesus going to the cross. Now the setting is this. Jesus has been up for over 36 hours probably. He has, um, he has gone to the Garden of Gethsemane where he was arrested in the night. He's been up all night. He has... Uh, been carried back and forth, first of all, to the house of the high priest, and then to Annas, who was the former high priest, and they took him back to the high priest, and they went to the Sanhedrin. He went through all these mock trials. Finally, they say, we got to take him to Pilate, the Roman governor. Pilate hears the case, doesn't want anything to do with it. He says he's a Galilean. Take him to Herod. They take him to Herod. Herod says, I don't have the authority. Send him back to Pilate. I mean, it is just a train wreck of kangaroo courts. But finally, the decision is made. And Jesus is sentenced to be crucified. And before he is crucified, Pilate orders that he be flogged. Roman soldiers, executioners, had a whip. It was called a cat of nine tails. A cat of nine tails was a whip that had nine strands of leather. And embedded in the ends of the strands of leather were pieces of sharpened metal that would, when that whip fell across a person's back, those pieces of metal would embed themselves in the flesh and as it was pulled away, rip away the skin. It was brutal. A crown of thorns is placed upon Jesus' head. And then he is forced to pick up the crossbar section of the cross and carry it through the streets of Jerusalem. Fatigued, beaten, losing blood, Probably hasn't been fed. We're not told that he ate anything during those moments after the Lord's Supper on that night with his disciples. He collapses under the weight of that crossbar and a man named Simon from a city called Cyrene is conscripted. He's, he's pulled out of the crowd and made to carry the cross. And then when they get to the top of this place called Golgotha, place of the skull, it was a skull-shaped hill outside Jerusalem. There Jesus is laid upon the cross. He is nailed hands and feet. The cross is lifted up and dropped with a bone-jarring thud into the ground. And then Jesus speaks the first time from the cross. Jesus speaks seven times from the cross in the six hours of his crucifixion. Four of them are very near the beginning. Three of them are very near the end. But the first thing Jesus said from the cross is very instructive. Look at verse 33. When they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right and the other on the left. But Jesus was saying, as that could be translated, Jesus kept saying, he repeated this phrase, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they cast lots, dividing up his garments among themselves. And the people stood by looking on, and even the rulers were sneering at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if this is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up to him, offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Now there was also an inscription above him. This is the king of the Jews. On the cross, the first thing Jesus says is incredibly instructive of us. It is a, a word of forgiveness. 
in the midst of all that is going on, Jesus looks out at those who have gathered around the cross and says, Father, forgive. Forgiveness, first of all, exposes our biggest problem. When most people were crucified, crucifixion was capital punishment. Nobody gets off a cross alive. And so when most people were crucified, they were the worst of the worst of society. The Roman system of justice had different punishments for different crimes, much like ours. And so crucifixion was reserved for the very worst. And when most people were crucified, they did one of two things. Either they were, they were uh, just cursing and, and uh, they were people who would come and mock those around them. and They would spit on them. They were kind of, they had this vile attitude or they were absolutely repentant and broken and they, they, they pleaded for mercy and perhaps they would pray a prayer. One historian says that one of the most common prayers that was prayed by criminals who were being crucified was, may my death atone for my sin, which nobody's death can atone for their sin. But they would, they would plead for that. So people either came to the cross bitter or they came broken, but Jesus came blessing. Nobody had ever prayed for their executioners, ever. That did not happen. And Jesus in this moment, in his prayer to the Father, exposes our greatest need. Our greatest need is forgiveness. Our greatest problem is our sin. That's our greatest problem. And in this moment on the cross, when Jesus is dying for the sins of the world, this first statement from the cross pulls back the curtain and says, okay, here's why I'm here. Here's your biggest problem. Here's the biggest problem of mankind. You desperately need forgiveness. What does that word forgive? What, what does it mean? Most of us think we know what it means, but what did it mean in its original usage? Well, the word means literally to send away, to send something away. And in some respects, it can mean to abandon, to let something go and never reach back for it again. Sometimes when you're driving down the highway, you'll see a car parked over on the side of the, of the highway and, and it'll sit there for a few days. And after a few days, you'll see that there's a sticker that's placed on the windshield. The state troopers did that or somebody in law enforcement did that to say what day they found that car just sitting there. And if it sits there for a few days, they give people, you know, if you want to come, if it's your car broke down, you want to come back and get it, you can. But after a while, that car is just towed away because it has been abandoned. Nobody's coming back to get that car. Well, that's what the word forgiveness means. It means to take our offenses and abandon them to leave them and never come back to those offenses again, to those hurts, to those insults, to those lies, to those injuries. But the most common way that the word was used in the time of the New Testament is really interesting. It came to be used for the cancellation of a debt. Last week, for those of you who might not have been here or watched last week, I talked about a parable that Jesus told where a man had an unpayable debt. He owed a king a huge sum of money and the king canceled his debt. He forgave his debt. And all of us have an unpayable debt, a sin debt to God. You know, in, in our culture, there's a lot of talk about that right now. 
we're talking about, and there's a political debate about what we do with $1.7 trillion in student loan debt. Some people say we cancel none of it. We cancel zero. Some people say we cancel like $10,000 and, and the excuse is that it's COVID and, uh, you know, people can't find jobs. And I realize a lot of recent college graduates have had trouble finding jobs in this economy. Some people say let's cancel up to $50,000 a debt. Some people say let's just cancel it all. Just, just cancel it all. My position on this is Psalm 3721. You can just look that up and some of you are scrambling right now. But that's just my position on it. Psalm 3721. But, but, you need to understand something. Cancellation of debt is not accounting magic. It's not, it's not the magic of accounting. Cancellation of debt just means you're not going to pay, but somebody else does. In the parable... The king pays for the ungrateful servant's debt. In the student loan thing, if we cancel that, then the taxpayers pay for the student loan debt. And in our situation, Jesus pays our sin debt. When Jesus talks and said, Father, forgive, he exposes our biggest problem, our greatest need. We have an unpayable debt that only he can pay. Second, forgiveness expresses the heart of Jesus toward us. Forgiveness expresses the heart of Jesus toward us. He, he said, Father, forgive them. Now, who's them? That's a good question, I think. Who's the them in this equation? Well, when we read this in its proper context, it's pretty obvious that he's referring to the soldiers to the soldiers who had nailed him to the cross, who had beaten him and who had driven him up the streets of Jerusalem to that skull-shaped hill. And so when he says them, he's obviously talking to those who have wounded him, those soldiers. But he's also talking, I believe, to those religious rulers that it talks about in verse 35 who were sneering at him. These are people who had trumped up charges. They couldn't come up with any good reason to crucify Jesus. As a matter of fact, Pilate examined him and said, I find no fault in him. He's done nothing worthy of death. So they trump up some charges on him and begin to make stuff up. Maybe he's looking into those crowds and he's seeing some of his disciples who had turned their back on him. Peter had denied him three times. Perhaps standing off in the shadows, there's James. There's John we know because John took Mary, his mother, to the cross to see him one last time. Maybe when Jesus says, Father, forgive them, he's talking to his own disciples. But whether it was somebody who has injured him personally, whether it's someone who's made something up and lied about you, whether it is someone who has been a friend and they've turned their back on you, Jesus prays, Father, forgive them. Now understand that when Jesus offered this forgiveness, it was more than an emotional response. That when Jesus offered forgiveness, there was significance in this. First of all, it was a matter of prophecy. 700 years before Jesus was born, the prophet Isaiah made a prophecy. It was one of the proofs that Jesus is the Messiah. In Isaiah chapter 53, verse 12, And he was numbered with the transgressors, with sinners. Yet he himself bore the sins of many 
and interceded for the transgressors. The word intercede means to pray. He prayed for the sinners. In this moment, Jesus is fulfilling prophecy, proving that he is the Messiah, the King of the Jews. Just like the sign said above his head. But it wasn't just a matter of prophecy. It was a matter of principle. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 44, Jesus says, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Jesus didn't just preach what we ought to practice. Jesus practiced what he preached. Jesus prayed for those who persecuted him. His teaching wasn't just lofty philosophy. It was a way of life. But more than anything else in this moment, it was a matter of purpose. Jesus models for us the very reason he's on that cross, to extend forgiveness. He models forgiveness without the offender asking. The Pharisees didn't come and fall on their knees down in the dust and say, Oh, Jesus, we've been all wrong about you. Those Roman soldiers never got down on their knees and said, Lord, please forgive me for what I've done. The disciples at this moment haven't even asked for forgiveness. And yet Jesus extends it. And Jesus extends it without threat of revenge. Jesus also said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. They don't know what they're doing. Ignorance does not mean innocence. Just because I am ignorant of my offense, it doesn't mean I'm innocent of my offense. And Jesus says, Father, I, I forgive. And I'm asking you to forgive in this moment. That's what Jesus is really saying. About 25 years ago, a great historical event took place. The Republic of South Africa had been run for decades, for about seven decades, by 10% of the population. 90% of the population couldn't hold office. They could not vote. Uh, they were disenfranchised. Now, it just so happens that that 10% were white and the 90% were black. One particular man led a campaign for many, many years to change that to change South Africa's system. It was called apartheid. Think segregation. That's what it basically meant. His name was Nelson Mandela. 26 years earlier, Nelson Mandela had been, had been arrested on trumped-up charges. His only real crime was that he was against the political system that was in place. He'd been thrown in prison and kept there without without visits even from his family for 26 years. For most of those 26 years of his being held at Robben Island Prison, he was held in solitary confinement. But the system began to fall apart. And the minority government began to realize that something had to change. A president was elected named F.W. de Klerk, and he, he realized that the system had to change. He released Nelson Mandela from prison. Together, they negotiated a new constitution. And in the next election, Nelson Mandela was elected as the president of South Africa. F.W. de Klerk, the former president, agreed to form a unity government with him and serve as his vice president. Remarkable humility, actually. But on the day that Nelson Mandela was inaugurated as South Africa's president, he gave a speech 
Ambassadors from virtually every nation on earth were there for this historic moment. The parliament was there. Dignitaries were there. Thousands of people jammed the streets of Pretoria, South Africa. And as he gave his speech, Nelson Mandela pointed out two men that he had invited. They were guards from the Robben Island prison. Mandela paused in a dramatic moment and people held their breath wondering what he was going to say next as he asked them to stand. And Nelson Mandela then said these words, If I can forgive, this nation can forgive and you can forgive. It was a powerful moment. You see, if you say, as a, and if you're a follower of Christ and you say, I cannot forgive that. Let me help you with something. You are denying the power and presence of God in your life. It is an absolute contradiction for a person who says, I am a follower of Jesus, to then say, I cannot forgive. Jesus gives us the power to forgive if we will only surrender to it. That brings me to my last point. That forgiveness reveals the attitude expected from us. What Jesus did on the cross reveals to us what He wants from us. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 32. Be kind to one another. Tender hearted. Forgiving each other just as God in Christ has forgiven you. That's a commandment. We are commanded to forgive others in the same way that we received forgiveness. Full, free, without hesitation. But I also want you to know that what's expected of us is forgiveness for another reason. Because it's for our own good. Now if you've drifted off on me, if you've gone off to another website while you're pretending to read the Bible on your phone, come back. Because what I'm about to say to you is one of the most important things I will ever say to you about forgiveness. And I'm very, very serious about this. The quality of your life as a Christian will be directly proportional to your ability to allow God to forgive through you. Listen to the words of Jesus. Mark eleven twenty five. 25. Whenever you stand praying, that is, this is a person who is standing in a worship service. Whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father who is in heaven will also forgive you your transgressions. The quality of your fellowship with Christ, with God, is directly related to your ability to forgive. Your prayer life will be impacted by your ability to forgive or your lack of ability to forgive. I have Christians say to me all the time, I used to pray and I, I, I sense the presence of God. I pray now and it's just words. I try to read my Bible and it doesn't speak to me like it used to. Is there an issue of unforgiveness in your life? Because unforgiveness blocks the flow of God's blessings into your life. 
Jesus promised us, he said, I came to give you life and that you might have it more abundantly. Jesus promised us an abundant life. And many of us are not experiencing the abundant life that Jesus promised because we have chosen to not forgive. And it blocks God's blessings in our lives. I want to plead with you to take these messages seriously, not because I've said it, because Jesus said it, and learn to forgive. There was a moment this week that was very, very powerful in the media. I don't know if some of you saw this, if you're a country music fan. I listened to some country music, uh, but quite honestly, I didn't know who uh, Morgan Whalen was. I, I, I didn't. I, I'm a Kenny Chesney fan, Garth Brooks, that's okay, George Strait, I'm, I'm old, okay? But Morgan Whalen is a country music singer. He's kind of an up-and-comer. Well, he was caught on videotape using a very derogatory racial slur. And the reaction was swift. Other country music stars uh, criticized him. Some people condemned him for what he had done. Regardless of his apology, the Academy of Country Music said he would be ineligible for awards uh, from them. His contract was suspended by his recording company. Uh, radio stations pulled his songs from their playlist. This is what our culture does when you step out of line. We cancel you regardless of your apology. But the powerful moment of all this wasn't that. The powerful moment of all this was what happened on Friday when another up-and-coming country star named Jimmy Allen tweeted out about this. And by the way, Jimmy Allen is black and the slur was against black people. Jimmy Allen tweeted, Forgiveness is more powerful than abandonment. I like that. Forgiveness is more powerful than abandonment and cancel culture and pushing people to the side and discarding them and saying there's no hope for, them, for you. Forgiveness is more powerful than abandonment. So, so how do I do it? Real quick. Three steps to begin the process of forgiveness. And I'm going to pick this up next week. Three steps to begin the process of forgiveness. Number one, lift them to God. Pray for them. That's what Jesus did. That's the first step. You start praying for that person who hurt you, who insulted you, who lied about you, who betrayed you. You begin praying for them. Now, it's okay to pray that they see how much they've hurt you and they repent and maybe even that they come and apologize, but you can't wait for that. It's not okay to pray that God would rain down fire and brimstone on them and turn them into a heap of ashes, okay? Don't pray that prayer. <laughs> Lift them to God. Second, leave them with God. Repeatedly in Scripture, the Bible says, Vengeance is mine, thus saith the Lord. If there is to be judgment for the offense, you leave it with God. That's not your job. That's not your job. You leave them with God. God dealt with you about your sin. You leave them with God to deal with them about their sin. Lift them to God. You leave them with God. 
You're not going to take revenge. You're not going to respond in kind. If they insulted you, you're not going to insult them. If they lied about you, you're not going to lie about them. Leave them with God. And third, love them through God. Love them through God. How many of you in this room would agree with me that some people are hard to love? Don't look at your neighbor. But some people are hard to love. Would you not agree? You, you guys don't have anybody in your life that's hard to love? Really? Would you agree with me that some people are hard to love? Bless your hearts. You're more mature than I am. Because there are people in my life that are hard to love. And about the time that I say, God, in my flesh, I don't love them. I'm being honest. So God, please let the love that you send into me, please just let me love them through you. And let me love them through you until you change my heart toward them. And sometimes, you know what? Just about the time I get over the hump, they do something else. Is that not right? They do something else. Love them through God. Lift them to God. Lead them with God. Love them through God. That's the way you start the process of forgiveness. Let's pray together. Father, there's a truth here that some of us won't admit. And that is that we've been hurt, we've been offended. Things have been done or said to us, about us, that have made us angry. But Lord, the way you have prescribed for us and the way that you've shown us is not revenge and it's not repayment but it is redemption and so Father I pray for those who are listening to this message whether it's in this room or in another venue or they're riding down a road listening in, a, in an automobile Lord the way is forgiveness and so Lord teach us to let go Give us the strength to forgive, to cancel the debt, and to not revisit it. Lord, I also realize that there are those in this room who have never trusted Jesus. Lord, they've never had their debt canceled, their sin debt, and I pray that this would be their day. God, when they could cry out to you and say, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. I've broken your commandments. I have a debt I cannot pay, but I believe that Jesus went to the cross to pay my debt. I believe he was raised from the dead to give me a brand new life. So I ask Jesus to come into my life right now. Still others in this room, watch these students being baptized and know that they need to follow that step. And so, Lord, I'm asking you to give them courage. In Jesus' name, amen.